0: Thanks for joining the Inspired Churches podcast. If this is your first time listening in, we're glad you're here. For more information about our church, visit www.inspiredchurches.com. Now, let's listen to the word from Pastor Philip Mueller. So just for those of you that have been here, we've been walking through the seven I Am statements of Jesus. And I don't know about you guys, but this sermon series has really ministered to me in my study time is some way life. I hope that you're walking away filling the work of Christ and magnifying the person of Christ in your life and just to kind of slowly recap kind of what we've been over the past couple of weeks but if you remember in part one of this series uh, we looked at the words of Jesus in John chapter 6 verse 35 and you guys remember when he said he said I am the bread of life whoever comes to me shall not thirst and then, if you recall part two in John 8, verse 12, he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever comes, I'm sorry, I am the light of whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And then, two weeks ago, we separated John 10 into two sections. The first section was, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers. He says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pastures. And of course, he said, I am the good what? Shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know my voice. And this morning, we're going to cover the fifth of the seven I am sayings, and it's found in John 11, verse 25. And if you want to turn to John 11, uh, we'll get into the story, but I'm just going to read John 11:25. 25. Remember, this is number five of seven I am's. So we have two more left. But John 11:25 25 says this, Jesus, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, he shall live. Again, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. Now, if you're at John 11, will you just hold there for a brief moment? We're going to break down this morning's scriptures into three major sections. Again, if you're taking notes or for those that like to follow so I don't lose you, the three sections will be the purpose, the statement, and the miracle. The purpose, the statement, and the miracle. Now, I'm going to attempt to try and cover 44 verses this morning. So everybody take a deep breath. I promise you I'm going to do two things. I'm going to try not to put you to sleep, and I'm going to make sure that you're out on time. But we are going to get through 44 verses this morning. Now, my prayer for you and my prayer this week for myself and for the congregation has been threefold. I want you to pay attention to this. Here's my prayer. Number one, that after this morning's message, Christ will be glorified, yeah. that Christ will be lifted up, that he will be magnified. Yeah. And secondly, that every Christian in the building would walk out of here not fearing death. Now, that's a tall task. That's a tall task. But hopefully I can add to your faith or deposit something in your spirit. If you are a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, that you would walk out of here and death would just maybe just a little bit lose its grip on your heart. My prayer is that we'd walk out of here unafraid of death. And lastly, for those of you in here this morning who do not believe, my prayer is that you would believe in Christ. That you would believe in Christ. John chapter 11, verses 1 through 6. Reads like this. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. I'm sorry, Lazarus of Bethany, which was the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness is not unto death. It's for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place that he was. Now, this first part I titled The Purpose. Now, there's two confusing truths that emerge out of these first six verses. And they set the tone for the rest of the story. Well, let me tell you what I mean by confusing truths. First of all, I don't know if you realized it or if you saw it, but Christ's love is demonstrated in a delay. And secondly, God's mercy is demonstrated in a sickness. Two things that emerge in these, two truths that emerge in these first six verses that throw us off a little bit. Christ's love is demonstrated in a delay. You see, Christ considered all three of these individuals close friends. He was most likely comfortable enough to stay with them in their home when he traveled to that region. Y'all know you got to be close when you stay with somebody in their home. Right? (laughs) Well, sometimes maybe not, but for the most part, you don't just let anybody walk into your home. So when the sisters sent word of Lazarus, and when the sisters sent word to Jesus... And they sent word to Jesus telling them that Lazarus was sick. They included the one whom you love is ill. It's not like, hey, look, that one guy that you met that one time is sick. It's no, no, no. Like your really close friend, Jesus, is ill. Or your really close friend, Lazarus, is ill. And there's something that we have to pay attention to here. And they say the one whom you phileus is ill. The Greek word there that is used is the word phileus. And this word is a friendship kind of love. Now, one would expect that this kind of love would compel Jesus to move quickly on behalf of his best friend. In fact, they probably sent the message and included your really close friend, the one that you love, is sick because they believed that it would create a sense of urgency to rush to the side of the sick. And I want you to know that this illness wasn't just he had a cough or he had a common cold. They sent a messenger out because this illness was something that was going to lead to death. Lazarus needed a miracle. Yet we're told in verse 5 that even though Jesus loved them and he loved Lazarus, when he heard Lazarus was ill, we're told he stayed two days longer. Now, what kind of love delays? What kind of love doesn't show up when it's needed? Is that even love at all? Well, the answer lies Actually, in the Greek, you see, the love Martha and Mary used and understood in verse 3 was not the same love that John describes or ascribes to Jesus in verse 5. Now, remember, I said Phileas was used by the sisters in verse 3, and it signified a love, a friendship love. But in verse 5, the love that's used there is agapa or agape, which is the stem. But what's used by John there is that Jesus had an agapa love or an agape love. This love does not mean a friendship love. You see, the Greeks had different words to describe love. Are there any uh, any um, foreign language? Any Spanish speakers in the house? And you know, a lot of times you ever hear somebody say something in English, it just don't sound the same. It's just like, man, I need to say that in Spanish because it just carries something, right? Or maybe you there's there's some people in here maybe speak Tagalog. Any people speak Tagalog up in here? Yeah, we, yeah, raise your hand, don't be shy. I, know there's, I heard some of y'all. And there's just some things that the English language, language just doesn't connect well with. And so what we need to understand is that we use love, but we really just use it everywhere. But in, in languages like the Greek, there were several different ways to say love. And you knew when you said it the depth of what it meant. And you see, the phileus love that they were using was saying, Jesus, your really close friend, your best friend, your friendship kind of love, that's the one that was sick. But John says Jesus loved them, but he uses a different Greek word. He uses the word agape, or in that context, agapa, love. What does that love mean? Well, that love is a deeper kind of love. It's a love with a sense of purpose and a love that that goes beyond a friendship love. It's not a romantic love, but it's a purposeful, beyond a friendship type of love. It was the type of love that Mary and Martha probably couldn't comprehend. It was the kind of love that was not bound to the natural. The kind of love that was not limited to human understanding. You see, this was the kind of love that had no human limitation. This love that John ascribes to Jesus, although real and although deep, This love that he gives to Jesus, having for Lazarus and having for Martha and Mary, this love, although it was real and deep and purposeful, it was guaranteed, hear me out, to be misunderstood when it decided to delay. It was guaranteed to be misunderstood when it decided to delay. This is why if you read the story, three times we're told that they kept saying to Jesus, if you only got here sooner, Lazarus would be alive. Now, here's something difficult to understand. It's out of agape that Jesus doesn't immediately go. It's out of agape that Jesus doesn't immediately go to heal Lazarus. And Lazarus dies. Second. God's love, Christ's love is demonstrated through a delay. Second kind of interesting truth, troubling truth that emerges is that God's glory is demonstrated through a sickness. We're told plainly, this illness is so the Son of God may be glorified. Later on in verse 14 of the story, another purpose is revealed. Jesus says, Lazarus has died, and for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there. Jesus is talking to the disciples. He says, Lazarus is dead, and I'm kind of glad that he died for your sake, and I'm glad that I wasn't there to heal him. Kind of messed up, right? Everybody, tracking with me. Smile, smile with me. Give me a quick smile. Everybody, flash smile. We'll make sure you're not mad at me. Cool. All right, here we go. He says, For your sake, I'm glad I was not there. Now, watch. He says, Lazarus is sick, and he died, and for your sake, I'm glad that he was not there, so that you may believe. So now we see a dual purpose for the delay and for the sickness. The first one is this. It was to glorify Jesus. And the second one is, it's so that you can believe. Lazarus is sick and I'm not going to his bed right now so that he can die wait what what does that mean why Jesus that doesn't make sense I'm glad that he died so that you can believe and so that I can be glorified now there's a story in John chapter 9 about a man born blind you remember we covered that really briefly And in that story, in the very beginning, the disciples asked Jesus, who sinned, him or his parents? You see, during that time, and I think we still have it sometimes in this place. I think we can still think this way as human beings. When we see somebody that has experienced some sort of deep tragedy or somebody who's experienced some sort of life-altering sickness, we have a tendency sometimes to think, or maybe we ourselves go through something. I think maybe even more so when we go. We have a tendency to think that it's kind of recompense. God has stricken us with this because we have failed him in some area anybody ever thought that way in fact we ministered to a couple uh, a a while back that believed that um, they could not get pregnant unless because there was something in their past that was blocking them there was some sin that was blocking them And you see, in this story, in John chapter 9, there was a man who was born blind. There was not an accident or a circumstance. He just came into life blind. And the disciples were asking well, wait a minute. Why is he blind? Did he sin? Or wait a minute, it must have been his parents. And Jesus answers, neither him nor his parents sinned. He was born blind, get this, so that Jesus says, the work of God may be displayed in him. So are you telling me that God allowed him to be blind, that it was no one's fault? Yes. Are you telling me that God allows people in the scriptures to experience a sickness for some reason that we don't understand so that he can get the glory? This doesn't make sense. Sometimes God, in his mysterious and wise providence, allows his children... Are you ready? To go through suffering so that they and those around them can witness and experience his power and mercy through deliverance. If you and I didn't suffer, some of us wouldn't even be at church this morning. Can you imagine a world without suffering? Now that will come, but can you imagine a world without suffering? We'd be the most spoiled people in the world. Now in Lazarus' case... Jesus is allowing him to die. In fact, it's part of his plan. What's interesting here is that he delays. He. What's interesting here is that there's a delay. He delays. There's sickness, there's death, and sickness and death. Think about it. Sickness, death, delay. Say that to just sickness, death, delay. Those are all ugly things. Nobody even wanted to say it. There's only like two people that said it. Like, I'm not going to say that. And usually when we say sickness, death, and delay, those are not attributed to a loving father. How would God allow those things to take place? But we must remember, as modeled in this story, God's ultimate concern is for Jesus' glorification. You hear me, please? God's ultimate concern is for the glorification of Jesus Christ. And when the church doesn't understand this doctrine or this theology, the church, is, when the, church doesn't, the church becomes angry with God when things happen beyond their understanding. God's ultimate concern is for the glorification of Jesus Christ. And guess what? There's a, there's a byproduct of that. God's ultimate concern, it's a two-parter, is the glorification of Jesus Christ and your faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus' glorification and your faith in him. He's not concerned with your health. He is concerned with your health. But his ultimate concern is with the glorification of Jesus Christ and your faith in Jesus. He's not concerned with your bills. Wait. He is concerned with your bills. But his ultimate concern is the glorification of Jesus Christ and your faith in Jesus Christ. He's not concerned with your love life. Wait a minute. He is concerned with your love life. But his ultimate concern is with the glorification of Jesus Christ and your faith in him. This sets the stage for what's about to come. Now, I'm going to just kind of breathe through a breeze past this. Like I said, there's 44 verses, but in verses 7 through 9, I'm going to just give you a brief little synopsis of what takes place. The disciples... Jesus finally decides to go and visit Lazarus after he has delayed for two days. And the disciples hesitate making the trip back to Judea because Jesus has been there already. And you have to see, you have to know what happens. What has happened before is that he has been threatened to kill, be killed several times. In fact, they've tried to stone him before in that same area. So the disciples are kind of apprehensive in going back. Bethany was a place that Lazarus lived, and it was two miles away from Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem sat the leadership of Israel, those who opposed Jesus the most and who were trying to stone him in the past and currently devising a plan to kill him. So you can understand why Jesus says, all right, let's go to Bethany now. And a lot of the disciples are kind of like, no, nah, I don't want to go. There. That's a little too dangerous. If we go back to don't you know they already tried to stone you. And so all of a sudden there's this fear that creeps over them. If we go back to that place, Jesus, we're going to die. And then Jesus makes an interesting statement. He says, I, we have to move while it's still day. He says, if we walk in the day, we won't trip. But if we walk in the night, we'll fall. And when he refers to the day, he's referring to the will of God. You know basically he's saying is, as long as I'm in God's will, doing what he's called me to do, what happens will happen. And it'll be God's will. And whether that's death or that's life, it will be a success. But Jesus, knowing all things, knew that he wasn't going to die yet. It wasn't his time. And you see, until we accomplish God's will, we're kind of invincible. (laughs) into that I'll I'll, I'll hit myself for that one but I love Thomas how many know Thomas right what do we know him for doubting Thomas I gotta see this I don't believe that he's alive right good old doubting Thomas poor guy's got a real bad rap but look what Thomas says in verse 16 he bravely speaks up he says let us also go that we may die with Jesus so next time you talk about Thomas I need y'all to remember that part right there let us also go so that me, we may die with Jesus. I right? all the disciples like, really, Thomas? You, you're that guy. Come on, we have that guy in here? <laughs> it's like, all right, we got to go now. I mean, Thomas said. <laughs> so we understand the purpose, the glorification of Jesus and your faith. And the second thing is, we're going we're gonna to now walk into the statement. The I am statement of Jesus. Now if you got, if, let's go to John chapter 11 and we're going to read verse 17. Th- and then we're going to stop for a moment and then read 20 through 23. So eleven seventeen says this. Verse 17 says, now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. So Jesus delays two days. It's a day trip to get to Lazarus' place. That's three days. It took a day to get to the message to get to him. That's four days. So by the time Jesus gets to Lazarus, it's been four days. He's been dead, and he's been in the tomb. And he probably smells, and the body's probably decaying at this point. Now, I want to stop briefly because John includes what seems like a minor detail, but this detail is actually, there's a cool apologetic behind this detail. And the apologetic is this, that there was a Jewish tradition that was held during that time that when a person died, their soul periodically would come back to the body. So there was a Jewish tradition, and a lot of people held this view, that during that time, that when the, when the body died, the soul would hover. Would, I don't know where it would go. Maybe it would go around. But it would constantly come back and forth, revisiting the body. Now, they believed that on the fourth day, when the body was obviously in decay... The soul would completely abandon the body. So the soul was like, all right, I've I've come back a couple of times. The body's in decay. I'm completely gone. Now, once the soul completely abandoned the body, they believed. See, it wasn't that they felt like he wasn't dead. They believed he was dead. But they believed that his soul was still there so that a miraculous intervention can take place. But once the soul abandoned the body, they believed that there was no opportunity for a miracle. And so this sets the stage for the glorification of Jesus Christ. Now let's read verse 11, 20, or let's read uh, chapter 11, 20 through 23. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, so finally, after a delay, she hears, "The master is coming." Scripture says, "She went and she met him, but Mary remained seated in the house." Now Martha said to Jesus, "Lord, <laughs> if you had only been here, my brother would not have died." That's pretty bold. All right, that's Jesus. It's like Jesus is coming. I'm like you know, if you had just been here a little, I don't know if she was disrespectful, but what the connotation of that? She may have just came to him humble, but there was a connotation there. that look, I. There, you guys see the faith in that though. Yeah. The faith was is that I know you're a miracle worker, but I don't believe you to be a resurrector. Wow. You see, the disciples, their understanding of Jesus was always evolving. During this time, we have the luxury of the whole scriptures, but they were slowly beginning to realize all of the things that he had power over. And at this point, there was still Martha knew he could heal the sick. She just didn't believe he could touch the dead. Now, what's really interesting about this, though, is that there had been some that had been resurrected prior to this. But for some circumstance, and some reason, Martha came to say, look, if you had been here earlier, he would have been alive. But now he's completely dead. And so Martha said, Lord, if you had been here early, my brother would not have died. Let's continue. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Now, some of you say, well, is she kind of believing the resurrection? I'm going to break that down. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Jesus looked at her and said, your brother is going to rise again. Now, I want you guys to know this. Martha holds on to a belief, a theological belief. That was commonly held by the Pharisees at the time. They believed that, just like you and I believe, that at some point in the appointed future, there would be a time where all those that have died in God would be resurrected back to life. So you know how we believe in a rapture. Well, Martha and the Pharisees during that time believed that there would be an appointed time in the future in which the dead would resurrect. So when Jesus looks at her and says, your brother will rise again, Martha assumes he's saying what any sensitive person or individual would say to someone who has just lost a loved one. Just like if you were to lose a loved one and they were in Christ, you know, I was saying, you know they're going to be in heaven dancing, right? We say those things to draw comfort, right? Say, so you know what? I love you. My condolences. But, you know, they're with Jesus now. Those are things that we become accustomed to saying to be able to comfort those that we're talking to. So Martha assumes Jesus is saying, look, don't worry, one day your, your brother will rise again. And we know this because she says, she responds, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. So Jesus says, don't worry, your brother will rise again. Martha says, I know he will rise again on the resurrection on the last day. And then this is where Jesus steps in like the boss that he is, and he makes this statement. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Then he goes on he says, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. Then he makes an interesting comment. He says, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Then he says, do you believe this? Now, Jesus is telling Martha, the resurrection is not a theology. It's not a faith. It's not even an event occurring in some future time. He says, but the resurrection is the person who is presently standing in front of you at this moment. Now, this is yet another bold claim that only God could make. It's almost as if Jesus is saying he's God. God. It's like the other I am's. Not only does Jesus give light to the world, but he is the light of the world. Not only does Jesus guide us through the door to everlasting life, but Jesus is the door to everlasting life. You see, in those days, there was an idiom of expression that people use. If something was closely associated with someone, that person then would be identified with whatever they associated themselves with. For example, John tells us God is what? Love. John says God is love. There are a lot of people today in, in New Age philosophy. There are a lot of people today that love to add different religions and kind of worship this kind of man-created God. They say, see, God is love. He's love. He's not a person. They, they take away his personhood and believe him just to be this all-encompassing emotion and feeling. And they use scripture out of context. To build a man-made theology. But when John says God is love, what John is saying is this. That God is so loving and so closely connected with the concept of love. That it could be said that God is the very love that he speaks of. That he is the embodiment of the reality. That is a part of who he is. Likewise, Jesus is connecting this very profound statement. He's connecting his personhood. With the power over death and the power over everlasting life. He's saying, not only do I have the power to raise people from the dead, and not only do I have the power to raise myself from the dead, but I am resurrection. He deepens the understanding by making what seems like two contradictory statements. He says this, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Then he says, and everyone who lives, believes in me, shall never die. So which is it? Are we never going to die? Are we going to die and going to live? What are you trying to say, Jesus? It's kind of hard to understand. Now, let's clarify. Jesus is saying this. Those who are in Jesus, listen to this, please. Those who are in Jesus, through faith, never die in one sense. Yet in another sense, they do die and continue to live. Head scratcher. The difference here is between two Greek words, thanatos and zoe. Can you say thanatos? Can you say zoe? Good. Now, the life that Jesus gives begins in the soul the moment faith is born in the heart. I'm teaching here a little bit. So it's the life that Jesus gives begins in the soul the minute the heart puts faith in him. That life is Zoe, and it cannot be destroyed by Thanatos or physical death. I feel like it's a comic book, right? Thanatos would be a great, is that a name of, like, a real evil comic book guy? Is it really? Okay, so I did get it. Look at these comic books. I know we have some, some neat nerds and geeks in here. I'm with you. I'm with you. Shout out to Nerd Basics. Thanatos... Or physical death. Some of you guys don't get that, it's okay. You'll, you'll get it later. Thanatos is physical death. Zoe is a life that's birthed in the soul the minute you say yes to Jesus in faith. Thanatos cannot touch Zoe. Thanatos has no power over Zoe. See, Jesus is the resurrection in the sense that whoever believes in him, though he Thanatos or he die physically, you'll inherit Zoe, or you'll you'll inherit an everlasting life of the soul. This is the kind of life that only comes from above. This is the kind of life that's begotten by the Spirit. This is the kind of life that's immune to physical death. Now listen, this is very important. In order to make Martha understand that he has the power to give life now, Jesus will act out a drama that involves raising her dead brother to life. Now remember, the miracle that is about to take place only brings clarity to the statement that Jesus made. Gosh, we got to get this. Remember, the miracle that takes place only clarifies the statement that Jesus has made. The miracle is a sign, y'all remember? The miracle is a symbol. The miracle is meant to affirm the truth of Jesus' words. The temptation this morning and the temptation back then is to get caught up in the miracle. But the miracle is simply meant to produce greater faith in what Jesus has communicated. What Jesus is saying is this there is a kind of life that physical death cannot touch, there's a kind of life that physical death cannot destroy. This life I give to the soul the moment the heart places its trust in me. And this life will continue to exist long after the body decays. So to prove to you that what I'm saying is true, I'll go resurrect this dead body back to life. Don't get caught up in the physical miracle. That was not what this was about. If somebody died right now and we resurrected them back to life, it would be so hard not to get caught up in that, by the way. <laughs> I would be so caught up. We'd probably put it on Facebook and IG. <laughs> right? Can you imagine that? Come to Inspire Church next Sunday. Look at this. Right? I mean, we that's what we do. Right? <laughs> Isn't that funny about our social media and IG, right? Whether it's personal or for the church, we show all the highlights, right? We don't show the lowlights, right? Everybody look, like, wow, that church is amazing. And they get there and it's like, it's not like the pictures. <laughs> so don't get me wrong, like the resurrection of the dead was incredible. But I need you to understand something about God. He lives in a reality. You and I are kind of just in the shadow of reality. The life that you're experiencing right now is only but a shadow, Oh, it's so hard to understand because you're here, you're now and you're experiencing it, and you don't see the reality. But I want you to know Jesus is saying there is a reality and you live in the shadow. So I'm gonna do a mir- a shadow, I'm gonna do a miracle in the shadow so you can believe what I'm telling you about the true reality. Do we have any Christians in a building? Okay. All right, let's get to the miracle. John chapter 11, 38 through 44. We're cruising along and we're almost finished. So here we go. John chapter 11, 38 through 44. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. You know, I'm going to keep reading. It was a cave and a stone laid against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. And Martha, God bless Martha. We have Marthas in the house. We have them all over the place, right? Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, "Lord, by this time there's an odor, <laughs> for he has been dead. Why y'all make that? Lazarus is dead. Y'all don't. This is a funeral. We're supposed to. <laughs> Says there's an odor by this time, <laughs> for he's been dead four days. There you go. John includes the four days again. And Jesus said to her, <laughs> "I love what Jesus said." Did I not tell you? (laughs) I don't think he said it like that. That's how I like to read it. Girl, did I not tell you already? Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you because you've heard me. I know that you always hear me. But I said this. On account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me and when he had said these things he cried out with a loud voice Lazarus come out and the man who had died came out and his hands and feet were bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth and Jesus said to them unbind him and let him go what a powerful powerful scenery what a powerful scenery! Wow. Think about it. Now, there's something I skipped over. The, the Bible tells us says Jesus was making his approach troubled. Mm. It's full of sorrow, and it was troubled. What would trouble and sorrow? What would bring sorrow and trouble to God? What would bring sorrow and trouble to the one who had um, to the one who understood the reality? What would bring sorrow and trouble? A lot of people think, well, you know, he loved Lazarus and he was crying for Lazarus, but he knew Lazarus was going to come back to life. What was bringing him sorrow and trouble? What was bringing him sorrow and trouble was that he was looking around and he was seeing the effects of death. The people that he had created, his children who had fallen into sin, this was a world of Satan and his army and death. And you see, prior to this, death was a bitter sting. And people felt that death was the end. And as they were mourning and they were crying, the Bible says it is sorrowful and trouble, and the Greek word there is that his spirit literally shook with inside of him. Now, I like to think of it because I'm a man and I just like to watch action movies, I like to think it was less about Jesus being kind of like frail and more about him getting ready to fight the last enemy. See, what was railing inside of him was like a boxer before he was going to get in the ring. There's some nervousness maybe. There may, But overall, there's, there's, a, there's a killer instinct inside of Jesus that says, I'm going to put an end <laughs> to something that has tormented my people. I wish somebody would get excited. He's talking to death. He says, I'm going to put an end to something that has tormented my people. I am going to make a statement right now in front of all these people that they don't have to be afraid of the greatest weapon the enemy tries to use against them. Job chapter 14. And, Will, if you could come up. Job chapter 14, verse 14. You don't have to go there. In the book of Job, chapter 14, verse 14, Job says this. He asks a question. Are you ready for this question? Here it is, and we're at the finish line. Job says, if a man die, shall he live again? This question has always been in the mind of every human being ever since death was first experienced on this planet. If a man die, can he live again? In every culture, in every tribe, in every civilization, we've always seen humanity speculate about the questions of what will happen when I die and is there an afterlife every culture every civilization has tried to solve that question when we die is that the end is the whole of my existence summed up between the two points of my birth and my death or is there something more is there something beyond you see life is so precious to humanity that within every heartbeat there's a hope that somehow some way there will be a victory over the grave every time a loved one passes there's a hope that somehow some way there will be victory over the grave and the greatest hope humanity has in this world hear me out the greatest hope that you have In this world that there is life after death is found in Jesus Christ and the historical records of his resurrection now here's the good news the New Testament does not look at that event as an isolated incident the death and resurrection of Jesus is not looked at as an isolated incident but it's an event that is the first Of a multitude of events that will be the exact same he is the first fruit of the resurrection there are many more to come it's not just one man but more will come because this man has gone because Jesus rose those who place their faith in him will rise too this is the core hope of Christianity This is why we know that in the early church, one of the main reasons why the Christians were so willing to face death, one of the reasons why in the early church, in the first century church, the Christians were so willing and so ready to be martyred was because they were absolutely, positively convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that there was a resurrection. This is why Paul makes a statement that I often reflect on. And it challenges me when I reflect on and meditate on this statement. It always comes back to my mind. It was something that I read maybe two or three years ago. I was was away on vacation at a lake and I read this verse and For the last couple of years, it's always repeatedly come back to me, and I'm in awe, and I'm challenged by it. Paul writes a letter to the Philippians, to the Philippines, no, I'm kidding. Philippians chapter 1, got to keep you guys on your toes, man. Philippians chapter 1, 20 through 24, listen to what Paul says. Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. He says, for me to live is Christ." Now, here's the challenge. And to die is gain. He explains, if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. He says, if, I'm gonna, if you're going to allow me to keep breathing, I'm going to work for you, Jesus. He says, if you allow me to keep breathing, I'm going to keep doing ministry. If you allow me to keep breathing, that means I'm going to be a fruitful laborer. When you look down, you're going to say, that's my good and faithful servant building the church. He says, so if I live, that's fruitful labor for me. Yet, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. Wait, Paul's having a problem. Life or death, I'm I'm not quite sure what I want. It says, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm going to go back here. See, all of us should be, I get a little dogmatic sometimes. All of us should be challenged by this. Some of you, to live is to live life to the fullest. Oh, man, I'm just going to do everything I can. Paul says to live is fruitful labor. Look, I'm not asking you to be Apostle Paul here. But I'm asking you, like, to live, like, can you put yourself second? Everything, you first, me first, do this first, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. You have your bucket list, Tom. We all have our bucket list. Where is ministry on your bucket list? Where is evangelism on your bucket list? Oh, that's a little, now. Nah, that doesn't make my top 10. I got to go to Europe first. I got to go experience this over here. I got to go, you know, where is evangelism on your bucket list? Where is building the church of Jesus? Am I being a little dogmatic? Am I being a little legalistic today? I don't think not. Paul says to live is to labor fruitfully. He says, but which I shall choose, I cannot tell. <laughs> he says, I'm hard pressed between the two. It's difficult for me. Here's the challenge to me and I want you guys to know this is when I've read this you, this is what it keeps speaking to me. He says, "My desire is to depart." Paul says, "I want to die." You know, and, and I, it would be quite morbid if he stopped there. Like, "No, I don't want you to die, Paul, please. Let's talk you off the ledge, Paul." But Paul's not saying that. He says, "Listen, my desire is to depart and be with Christ." Paul just doesn't understand these days. This culture is different, right? It's a little different, His culture. As Paul, man. as an apostle. I don't think like that. He says, my desire is to depart and be with Christ. And this is the part where me and Paul disagree a little bit. He says, because that's far better. I'm like, wait a minute, Paul. I don't know if I want to die. You see, I've fallen in love with this shadow. And sometimes we have more love for the shadow than the reality because it's hard for us to trust in the words of Jesus Christ. So Jesus says, I know that. I know it's going to be hard for you to trust me. So I'm going to do a miracle to prove to you what I'm saying is true. Paul says, my desire is to be with Christ, for that's far better. And then he says, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. He says, I'd rather die so that I could be with the love of my life. I'd rather die so I could see Jesus. I could be in His presence. I could worship. I could walk and talk with Jesus. I could be with the lover of my soul, the one who has died and resurrected and destroyed death. I'd prefer to die so that I can see Him. But it's better for you, the church, that I stay here. So I'm not going to go yet because God is not done with me. I have a mission to accomplish, and it's to build up the foundation of the church. And then when it is my time to go, because y'all know he'll be poured out like a drink offering. You know what that means? That means Paul was beheaded, and the reason why they called it a drink offering is because the blood that would come out would pour out like a cup of wine being poured. He says, I'm about to be poured out like a drink offering. Wow. As a Christian... I'm challenged by this. The amount of love for Jesus, the amount of trust that Paul has for Jesus, exceeds beyond my own understanding. Paul, how could you trust Jesus that much? For Paul, death was better because it meant closer to Jesus. What would this city look like if we had a church full of people who thought that way? Paul took Jesus at his word. The early church knew that death was not the final state. And because of Jesus, death was not a bitter victory for Satan over us, but death to a Christian, death to a Christian is now simply a transition from the shadow into real abundant life a much better situation, a much better environment. Now, this morning, I want to remind you, those who believe in Jesus have nothing to fear in death. Because for the Christian, death is simply a magnificent entrance to the supreme setting of human life. That's the heart of the Christian faith. Without this hope, Christianity would be anti-moralism without the resurrection Paul said Christians should be pitied the most y'all ever pity a Christian back in the day y'all don't have no fun you don't indulge in the flesh you don't get to do the things I get to do you don't get to Paul says without the resurrection every Christian should be pitied because we're over here trying to abstain and grow deeper in the Lord while the whole world's just having a blast Big old party, having a great time, filling the needs of the body, doing all these amazing things. Paul says, we're to be pitied. You see, without this hope, Christianity is empty moralism. It's irrelevant to modern man. Can I say that again? Without this hope, Christianity is empty moralism, irrelevant to modern man. But as long as there is a life, And as long as there is a death, there is no one more relevant to man than Jesus Christ. You see, Christianity without this hope is empty and it's moralism and we are to be pitied among all people. And Christianity without this hope is irrelevant to modern man. But as long as there is life and as long as there is death, there is no hope more relevant and no person more relevant to humanity than Jesus Christ. And this morning, my hope is that you would walk out of here and that Christ will be magnified. He would be lifted up in your life. Secondly, my hope is that if you're a Christian, you would walk out of here. And those grips that death has on you would just slip a little looser. And you would be encouraged to move deeper into your trust in his word. And finally, my hope is if you don't know Jesus this morning, if he seems to be irrelevant to you, Maybe you came in here and you don't know what's going to happen after life or death. Maybe you're an atheist or maybe you're agnostic or maybe you're a seeker. My hope is that you would have faith and find faith in Jesus Christ. Why? Not Buddha. Not Muhammad. Because none of these men made this statement. I am the resurrection and the life. Only Jesus made that statement. And my hope is that you would put your faith and your trust in him. Last thing, and we're praying. Why should I put my trust in Jesus? Because he went there first. Why should I trust Jesus over all these other religions and philosophies? You know you can trust someone when they're willing to do something first. You ever had someone tell you to do something and they don't do it? I don't trust that. There's no credibility there. None whatsoever. Hey, can you uh, go out there, do it? Like, I don't see you doing anything. You see, the reason why you could trust Jesus is because he said, I am the resurrection and the life. And he says, and to prove it to you, I'm going to raise this man from the dead. He goes, but secondly, I'm going to put myself in that situation. He says, and I am going to go into death. I'm going to go into the grave. And I'm going to resurrect. I'm going to go first so that you can come and follow me and realize I'm someone that can be trusted. Let's pray. Every head bowed, every eye closed, just for the sake of just for the sake of just prayer. And I don't want to make it awkward, but just let's just think for a moment. Can we just reflect for a moment? Every Christian in this building, can you reflect on Paul's words? If there's anyone here that's wrestling with their faith, unsure of their faith. You're in a seeker place. You're just seeking. Would you just, in that moment, consider the words of Jesus. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Father, I pray for everyone in this building, young and old, those in here that have their faith in Jesus Christ, those in here that are struggling with their faith in Jesus, maybe those that are just casually observing. I pray that you would speak loudly and clearly in this room right now, Holy Spirit. And if you don't know Jesus, I want to just invite you right where you're at to simply put your trust in him. And I'm going to pray a prayer of confession and a prayer of trust. And I would suggest everyone in this building would give ear and just silently be in agreement with these words. If you don't know Jesus, I, you would just hear these words. And today I ask that you would make him, you would put your belief in him. So, Father, I pray for everyone in this building. I pray for our hearts. Lord, we want Zoe life. We want the life that causes the soul to to live abundantly, that goes beyond Thanatos, goes beyond the physical death. So right now, if there's anyone in the building that doesn't know Jesus, today you want to make him your savior. Right now, I ask, just right where you're at, quietly. You don't even have to say it out loud, but I ask that you would just pray, Father Jesus, come into my life I want to know you I'm not perfect I'm a sinner and I'm not even guaranteed when I leave this place that I'm going to be perfect but I do know that you are perfect and you did not sin come on right where you're at and I believe Jesus that you died and you resurrected and because you did it I'm going to do it too so I put my faith in you you are Lord of my life you are God and I believe it believe Lord, I pray for every Christian in this building, any fear of death, any anxiety or stress, Father, that we would be a people like Paul that would fruitfully labor for you while we are alive, and that our faith in you would grow beyond the grave, knowing that to die is to be with Jesus. Let that be the hope of our hearts. I believe our fellow Christians throughout the world are experiencing that. Or give us a hope beyond the grave. Well, you've given it to us, but let it become a reality. We love you, Jesus, and we ask these things in Jesus' name we pray. Amen, amen, and amen. Inspired Churches aims to be a church that the city loves. We hope you enjoyed this week's sermon. Come back next week as Pastor Philip continues on the six-part series. For more information about how you can get involved or about our community, visit www.inspirechurches.com.